Hey, it's Ryan here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. At Go Be More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. Our apparel is designed to be a constant reminder of your commitment. And this podcast aims to give you the motivation and mindset to get started and keep going. In this episode, John and I speak with the CEO of Kidney Health Australia, Chris Forbes. We first connected with Kidney Health Australia when they reached out to John to do some interviews as part of their Red Sox initiative. Chris was gracious enough to join us on our podcast to talk about his background and how he came to lead the organization in 2018. Chris got his start in sales for DuPont, but a chance encounter on a plane ride saw him become the head of marketing for the Sydney Olympic Committee's football division. That led to a role as CEO for Ticketmaster's regional business and helped him really hone his skills in commercial business. When Kidney Health Australia called, they were looking for a commercial turnaround and he was the man for the job. Not being a kidney disease patient, Chris didn't 100% realize what he was signing up to fight against, but it only took about a week before he realized how much there was to be done. We have a deep dive conversation about the state of kidney disease in Australia and why he doesn't think of his organization as a non-profit, but rather a profit-for-purpose organization, as well as the many ways his organization is working to support patients. This episode is a mix of personal and professional, and we truly admire the work that Chris and his team are doing. As always, you can send any feedback about this episode to brian at gobymore.co. And now, here's our conversation with Kidney Health Australia's Chris Forbes. All right, Chris Forbes, welcome to the Go Be More podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Chris, it has been a pleasure getting to know you and your team over there uh, at Kidney Health Australia, down there in Australia. The last, uh, I don't know how many weeks or months we've been conversing via email and, and a couple of Zooms here and there, but you guys have such a wonderful team and appreciate the opportunity to get to know you a little bit more today. Uh, it's fantastic, and we really appreciate the support. Well, you're a long way away, but you're reaching out digitally through to the people here in Australia, and we're very appreciative. Yeah, it's been fun so far. We connected about my kidney disease story, and I think that there, it's very clear, or it's becoming more and more clear. I'm very interested in, in being a, a, a contributor to the greater good as far as helping those with kidney disease, the kidney community, and creating more awareness. So the opportunity to work with you guys on... Your, your Red Sox Appeal Initiative taking place this November has been such a pleasure just getting to know it, being a part of it and doing some interviews on some of the radio shows down there in Australia, all via phone, obviously. So, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about technology, but so grateful for what you guys are doing. And again, just the opportunity to be a part of the global effort to create greater awareness for kidney disease just means a lot to me. So I, again, I just want to say thank you to you guys for just being so awesome to work with and to learn from and to be a part of what you're doing. Well, the time zones are so horrific sometimes. And I think you're getting up at 3am in the morning to do a, an interview on one of our sports radio. So that'll be yeah. fantastic. And we appreciate <laughs> it. And I hope you get the red socks to wear when you're doing it. Yeah. Well, no, I have my red socks with me all the time. So like, anytime <laughs> I do a zoom, I'm like, so the red socks are these, you guys got to go get your red socks. This is what kidney disease is. Just in case you didn't know it. And, you know, it's actually kind of a great idea, not kind of a great idea. It's a great idea. When you have something to kind of create the association with something that somebody doesn't know about, it makes it easier for them, first and foremost, to at least remember it, right? And to begin to plant the seed to grow that understanding. And I don't know, I, I haven't paid as much attention to a lot of the other stuff that other organizations in the United States are doing. But I really love this Red Sox appeal thing. And, and I think that he says this is like the first year that he has a, a concerted effort around it and it's going to grow every year. I think you guys are on to something, though, and I'm, I'm excited to continue to support it well beyond this year. Yeah, look, we, we wanted to grow and, and we designed two sorts of Red Sox. You've got the retro style over there and they're in high demand, much more high demand <laughs> than the business socks. So it could be that they're on the racks next year for sale. So Chris- I love it. Yeah, we're, we're talking about this right now already. We started talking about the, this Red Sox bill. Can you just describe a little bit about what this is, what the overall campaign is sure. and what you guys are, are trying to achieve with it? Yeah, look, like, like everywhere in the world, COVID-19 hit us in March. And at, normally one of our major fundraisers is our kidney community comes out and does our big red kidney walks. Mm-hmm. They, they get together, they have a great time, they dress in red and, and they raise funds for Kidney Health Australia. Of course, that was wiped away in, in a 
in a blink of an eye due to COVID-19. And so as we hit November, um, calling in from Melbourne in Victoria in the bottom of Australia, which is the same size as mainland USA, and we're right down the bottom, the only difference is we've got a lot of desert in the middle. So we've been in lockdown for six months and, and particularly the last four where we've only been able to go out for less than an hour a day as we've tried to manage COVID-19. <clears throat> so now we're getting the kidney community to, to get out of the house, get out of their lounge rooms, to sign up and, and run or walk or ride 60 kilometres through November because that's about the time someone may spend on dialysis in a month. So that's 60 hours. So they're doing that, they're getting active, they're raising funds. And the Red Sox are exactly that. The Red Sox are just, when, when people are on dialysis, they get cold feet, so they wear socks. And so we're using that as a simple way of starting a conversation around, hang on, what's going on here? And and I've probably done 20 radio interviews around Australia in the last two weeks, and, and it's great to have the conversation around this yeah. insidious disease that's such a hidden killer such a silent killer and that's why it's it's you know it's new it's novel we'll try it we'll see how we go but we hope it grows over time i think it's got a lot of yeah. the foundational stuff you need i mean something that's that's concrete and physical something that that ties to the message and in a relatable way like you have a reason that it sucks it's not just sucks for no reason but that it's tied to the dialysis experience yeah. plus you know it stands out and it and it it's visible right i learned this in i don't know years ago uh, somebody t- said that one of the the amazing hidden like secret strategies of vending machines is that like it says Coke on the vending machine. So every time someone's standing at the vending machine, you're seeing them interact with like Coke on it or something like that, right? And and that that visibility when you see something, you might not think twice about it, but the more you see it, the more it becomes natural. And so you know mm. it's the kind of thing you can build off of. And I think it's important that it's bold and red and and stands out well, for that reason brian when you see them on my white legs they really stand out so <laughs> i bet i bet oh, all right chris so guys. we're, we're going to come back and talk more about kidney disease and your role sure. there because you guys are doing a ton of cool stuff but i yeah we usually get started off to know a little bit about you as a person and obviously we know you're from australia but can you tell us a little bit about where exactly are you from sort of where, where did you grow up what was what was your childhood like yeah, look, I grew up in the in the south of Australia, down the bottom. And look, I grew up in a really small country town. It was literally 200 people in the town in the middle of a rural area. I was born in that area and, and my dad was the country pharmacist. So in, in those days, we actually had a, a small hospital, believe it or not, because it was such a populated area due to the rural, due to the farmers. Dad was the vet. He was the pharmacist. He was the strapper for the football team. He was, you know, yeah. um, and he was, and, and, <laughs> and all things. And mum came off wheat and cattle farm and sheep farm up north. And so, and so we had that very rural upbringing. And so, in my childhood, you know, if we weren't in school, we we're outside, and it was it was either school, sport, or sport, or sport, or sport. And that's what the t- <laughs> that's what the town thrived on it. Yeah. around the tennis courts, the bowling green, the football ground, the cricket ground, which you don't have cricket very much in the US. But, you know, and so they were the values that you were brought up with, that those country values, I guess, such a brilliant upbringing before I sort of got into yeah. the world of um, having to Melbourne to go to university. So uh, mm-hmm. that was, it was a great childhood. How about a sport? You, you mentioned a bunch of different sports. What was your sport? Did you have a particular one that you... Thriving. Yeah, look, we were very seasonal. So uh, football for us is Aussie rules football. Uh-huh. So it's none of this coming at you in straight lines. It, it's There's uh-huh. no offside. It's no padding. It's it's very aggressive. Yeah. You know, we all walk around. I've got broken nose and broken bones and, you know, <laughs> posterior cruciates and all those sorts of things that go uh-huh. part and parcel with the game. And, you know, our, our final is is not dissimilar to the Super Bowl. There's 100,000 people in a football venue for, for the top part of AFL but look it was that and then the summer it was tennis or it was cricket again a, a British yeah. game but you know standing out in the hot sun for six hours at a time getting sunburned and so <laughs> all good fun but it was just that's what was all consuming and we remain particularly you know particularly Australians are sporting mad and, and you know we, we always said we'll bet on two flies walking up a wall and and that's what we do it's part of our culture. Yeah that's actually it's really cool that upbringing I a lot of people have that experience, even in, in America too. Sports is a big part of American culture for, for kids participating. I might be more like soccer is uh, probably the one that most kids do. And then there's tons, basketball and football are, are obviously baseball. But I think 
there's an experience to playing sports and growing up doing sports that it, it gives a direction for natural competitive energy and it gives a direction for the opportunity to work in teams and do build all these different skills that, that I think are really, they, they actually tend to define a lot of the country later as you, when you see how a whole country behaves, you mm -hmm. can, I think sometimes make a yeah. connection to the way they view sports and then the way they sort of act in politics or act in, in the international stage as well sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And we, we bat above our weight in terms of sporting performance. If you look at the Olympic yeah. sports like swimming, you know, we're a country of 26 million people compared to the US, say, you know, 350 plus. We've got a swimming and water as part of our DNA. You know, it's, it's what makes us Australian. We're, we're an island surrounded by water in yeah. every... In every country town, there's a pool and, and that's how, you know, we swam till the sun went down. And so we've got so many great Olympic swimmers, gold medalists, even today and the next Olympics in Tokyo will be there again. Yeah, absolutely. Did you swim too? By the way, did you mention that? No, I didn't. So if you can't swim, if you can't be a sporting star, you be a sporting administrator, right? And so I actually have worked in sport and entertainment for a long time before getting into this role. And I worked my last sporting role was a commercial role at Swimming Australia with the Dolphins. And so it was, so I was, I guess, lucky to be able to, my small part in contributing to an Olympic sport. Yeah, I was looking, Chris, at your, at your background before we got on the call. And, and I don't know when you got into sports, you mentioned, maybe this was before we started recording that you worked at DuPont for, for some time, but, but you also have a lot of experience working with the Australian Olympic Committee and, and doing work in the sports realm. So where did you, maybe after university, get your start in business? So when I first came out of uni, I was in agriculture research. I was, you know, I, oh, I loved the land and I lived in the country. I moved out of Melbourne into the country. And I, I ended up um, in, in Asia, living in, in Thailand, in Bangkok, and, and working across Asia in agriculture with DuPont. I, I found that I was better in the commercial area rather than research. I wasn't very good at that. And so that was my love. I got experience in business. And so I was, I was doing that. And then it was crazy. I was sitting on a plane coming back to Melbourne from Bangkok, and I sat next to someone who was recruiting staff for the Olympics in 2000. And within six weeks, I was the marketing manager of soccer for SOCOG for the 20, 2000 Olympics. And, and I literally what? sat there at my desk on the first day and said, well, I know how to market products, but how do you market sport? And I read the textbook and away you went. And one of the most amazing experiences of your life, we, we sold, you know, 1.6 million tickets to soccer in a, in a country where soccer wasn't that popular. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, it was it was in Sydney and four other cities around Australia, and it was so, so successful. And it started a real resurgence of soccer in Australia. Can I ask you, from your experience working on that the Olympic experience in Australia? I mean, this is I'm looking at what's going on with Tokyo and and the effect that COVID has had, and trying to reorganize. I had some tickets to some soccer matches actually for for this year. That, of course, I if they hold them next year, we should be able to go. But looking at the logistics of how big the Olympics is and how much is, has to be done and how much has to be coordinated, when something throws kind of a spanner in the works on something like that, I, it's hard to me even, to even imagine how, how to move something that big, you know, if that makes any sense. I'm I curious think it, what you think from a, that. A lot of it's about, so I've been to Tokyo. So prior to joining Kidney Health Australia, one of my jobs at swimming was to negotiate the training camps for the dolphins and so that was a nagaoka about uh, two hours by fast train above tokyo yep. look japan is such a fantastic country they're organized they've got the venues ready so the the covid issue is probably more about logistics of moving people and keeping mm -hmm. people safe and and of course you have to put the athletes at the center of that and so that that's going to be the issue i i think japan you know australia we could quickly turn around the venues and the organizations to run an olympics it's, it's probably more how do you keep people safe and how do you get people in? Hey, I bring this up as an example a lot, just to quickly touch on this, because it's an interesting topic, just in terms of the feasibility of actually executing on doing the Olympics and stuff. And one of the sporting organizations that did an amazing job thus far this year is the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship organization, in terms of they just figured out, like, they did Fight Island in Abu Dhabi, they decided... They're just going to, you know, test everybody. They're not going to have crowds. They're going to focus on pay-per-view and live streaming, ESPN, all this other stuff. And they're having a record year for them as an organization. And they kept all the athletes safe. 
and all the staff safe. Like I haven't heard one person come back from a positive test from any of the events that they've put on because they created the bubbles. They yeah. tested like crazy and they just said, no crowds. We're just not going to do it. And we're going to live with that. Do you think that that's kind of how it should be done or is that, or, or like the, probably the most realistic way I should say to go about approaching the Olympics is protecting athletes and not really buying into the idea that there's going to be crowds because there well, probably shouldn't be. Yeah. Look, I think, look, I think it's a balance depending upon what the environment is, but we, we've done the same this yeah. year with the football league, with the hub hub concepts where the players and the officials go into a hub parents, um, sorry, spouses and, and kids also went through a quarantine to go into the hub, strict okay. rules around you know, where they travel, engagement, going out, those sorts of things. And it worked very successful. And, and what we've shown in Australia okay. as an island is that we've managed to actually really suppress coronavirus right down to the point where we're now opening up. We're now, look, flights from New Zealand are coming in. So we're starting, you know, Trans-Tasman hub. So that's been wow. a very successful. So I think I think, you know, we, we look outside of Australia to what's happening in the US and what's happening in, in UK and Europe and, and it's getting away again. And, and, and so that's problematic, you know. And so yeah. I think if, if we're going to be have any successful sporting event, whether it be a FIFA World Cup or whether, you know, we're, we're looking at the Australian Open in January as to how, how is that going to go ahead? Can we have <laughs> crowds? What, right. how, do the, how do the international players participate in a safe way so that they don't bring infection? Because most of the COVID infection coming into Australia is only when returned overseas travellers. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is That's the interesting, interesting. challenge of, of you know, sports and in events in general is keeping everybody safe and coordinating it and everything. Then there's, there's the, the daily life challenge. You guys mentioned you've been sort of in lockdown for months and, you know, Japan has not been. My experience is, is that it's not lockdown. They, they were very strict very quickly. And, and then as things didn't really spread, they sort of opened up and now, you know, it's, you see the numbers, it's hard to tell you, know, it's hard to tell like when, when is the cutoff when you have to start being really strict again, because you see numbers going up, but it's, it's really slow relative to many places in the world. And then of course you got the U S which was just like, just not coordinated from the beginning and not in agreement on the strategy and not executing as well as they needed to from from the very beginning. And I think the good news is that, you know, obviously as we're recording this, there's there's really positive news about vaccines efficacy and that it'll take time for that to actually be be distributed and 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 spread out through the communities. But with any luck, that vaccine will help to to allow us to get back to some measure of normalcy. John and I always talk about how, you know, we're not going to return back to normal because normal wasn't really, wasn't really all yeah. that great in all that, in, in many ways too. There's a, there's a, we need to return to something a little better than normal, but. Well, it's about making choices, isn't it? We, we made a yeah. choice in mm -hmm. Australia to mm -hmm. lock down. We, we had it under control in the middle of the year and then some ho hotel quarantine issues where um, the virus got out from returned overseas travellers and down here in Melbourne, it, it got away. And so we locked down hard. We couldn't go out for more than an hour. We were um, only 5Ks from our home. I've been working from home since March and this weekend's the first time I'll be able to go into the country. We had a ring of steel around Melbourne where you couldn't get through. So I haven't seen my parents for five months or so. So it was killing people, it was killing aged care and that. So we locked down and now we've got it under control. And so you've got to balance that with the economic impact, et cetera. But yeah. our government was very supportive. Even in my own business, we, we were able to access government funds to keep staff employed um, wow. because we were busy because the kidney community is very immunocompromised. They couldn't go, you know, they couldn't be out. If they catch COVID, it's not a great outcome. Yep. And so, you know, Australians, we really dug in deep to, to get it under control, and I'm really happy that now we have. So just to clarify, your country, you, or you feel like Australia did a really good job of coming together as a country during this time? Yeah, look, we've been wearing face masks. We haven't been travelling. We've been, you know, sacrificing things like family get-togethers, and, and it hurt a lot of people. Pubs and restaurants wow, all closed and man. shops closed and et cetera, and you know, some will never come back from that. But the the end of the day, lives were saved. And we've it got into aged care and we've managed to now control it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we feel that we're coming into Christmas very buoyant. But what we, I mean, we're a long way away from the rest of the world, but we travel a lot as Australians. You know, we, we do. Yeah. And, and and that's just not going to happen for a while. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, that's probably one of the toughest things that I do feel most frustrated about is that, the idea of connecting with with others, the idea of being able to 
to actually go out and be a part of the world. That's the disappointing thing about all of this. In my mind, you know, in terms of a lot of the things that, that, that have kind of fallen apart. Well, the funny thing is to think that a lot of those things are going to fall apart anyway, and that it just took a month of bad economic experience for a lot of businesses to go out of business. And it's like, well, that shows you they probably weren't really a viable business in the first place, or they weren't being managed or operated very well. And that times have changed, you know? And so we need to change. And this is just forcing overall, like the the ugly, the deep-rooted things that, that, that as a global society, we just kind of were like taking a status quo and not really believing that anything could change, this is the moment where this, a lot of those things can, and we should make the concerted effort to change instead of accepting it as it was before all of this really hit all of us in the way that it has. That's right. And there's countries that I'm familiar with in South America where you know 60% of people get their daily earnings daily in cash you yeah. know it's, it's it's that so you can't lock down otherwise you don't have money to, to eat so you know wow. we've got to we've got to find a better way yeah yeah well chris you uh, you mentioned your experience with soccer i, I always want to say football and then there's three footballs in my mind now with this, <laughs> yeah, with this no, podcast <laughs> australian american and soccer so after the olympic experience what did you end up going to what was it what was your next step well, it was like like many people. So the day the Olympics finished, there's 2,000 sports administrators out of work. And in a country like <laughs> Australia, it's bloody hard to get a job. So um, you either go on the circuit or you go and find something else to do. So I actually went backpacking as a more, more sort of mature age person. And like, you know, I went around Europe and, and Ireland, et cetera, went over. I actually have a mate who lives in Lima in Peru and I went and played cricket as an international guest playing cricket for the Peruvian cricket team in the South American Championship. So <laughs> I'm telling you now, not the highest standard of sport, but it was fantastic. So that is really cool. That is amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> I got a game because I was able to bring two bats over with me. So, you know, so that was good. But, yeah, that was an amazing experience. And so I tr- went down to um, Argentina. Argentina and we played Brazil and Chile and and a few other countries for a week and I remembered how poor my hamstrings were and all those sorts of things and and (laughs) we had a great time and then came back and I got a job at a venue an Australian rules football venue and I got into marketing in in a in a in a big venue that sits about 60,000 people so I, I worked in a stadium for a while. So you yeah. started when you, you, it sounded to me when you graduated, you had a degree maybe in the sciences, you were going to do research. Yeah, I'm a Bachelor of Science honors degree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so then, and then you ended up now you're pursuing marketing, you're working in sports, you worked for the football stadium for a little bit. I think I, I saw that you worked for a while in, in ticket ticketing. I want to say ticket master. I'm not sure if that's yeah. No, that's word. right. So I mean, my dad reminds me every day that I wasted my degree, right? So he wanted me to, be, I'm sure he wanted me to take over the f- family pharmacy and all that, but it wasn't for me. So yeah. So I always preach that yeah, getting a degree is showing you have the ability to learn. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to work in that area, right? 100%. So that's 100%. my cop-out. Well, well um, I got a degree in philosophy. There's just not that many jobs in philosophy. It's more, so yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Everyone's got an opinion, right? So, yeah, so-, um, <laughs> <laughs> so actually, yeah, I, I ended up becoming CEO of Ticketmaster for Australia and New Zealand, which is, you know, and oh. coming into Los Angeles to the mothership and it was where Ticketmaster. So Ticketmaster, you know, we were, no one no one loves Ticketmaster because of their fees, right? So, right. I was going to uh, ask you, so I was going to say, you know, okay, it's time to put you on the hot speed. To so for a while there, yeah. I've, got, I've got two young girls. And so for a while there, I was the most popular father in Melbourne because they got to go and see all the artists and, exactly. and do all those, you know, from, from Barney the Dinosaur right up through into Lady Gaga, et cetera, right? So, wow. So, so they were... They were very lucky, and it was it was a great experience. And Ticketmaster, a, a really a, a great a great global company. Can you? Yeah, I just want I do want to ask a question about sort of how it works because that is the experience of Ticketmaster. If you ask anybody, what do you think about Ticketmaster? Most people are going to be like, ah, oh, the six dollars a ticket or whatever the the fee is that that's what they're going to think about. So outside of just the ticketing, does Ticketmaster is Ticketmaster running more stuff for the venues? What all did Ticketmaster do? I think we only I'm, I assume we only see a small part, which is the the facilitation of purchasing a ticket and and yep. making sure that that ticket is valid and available to to you, right? Yeah. No, look, the Ticketmaster is a very integrated company these days with Live Nation, who who manage the art. They own in America, they own venues. 
they run band management, artist development. The ticketing is kind of an operational component, but they're really they, everyone. Everyone who works in that business works incredibly hard. They work under really difficult circumstances, and and they and they are passionate about what they do to deliver a fan experience for when you go to the concert because. You know, my phone would go on a Friday night. The barcodes are not working at a certain venue, and and everyone's standing outside yeah. screaming because they can't get in. And it, it may be us, it may be the venue. Who knows? So I know that all my teams I worked with were young people who just worked so incredibly hard. And under weekends and standing out in festivals and setting up infrastructure, you know, right. by satellite, all this sort of stuff that you don't see. So you, so the fan can have a seamless experience. And the buying, you know, when you buy a ticket, you know that you're going to get that ticket and that barcode's going to work. And if the concert gets cancelled, you'll get your money back. That's not how it used to be. And so Ticketmaster has that role. And, uh, you know, whatever you hear about fees, et cetera, you know, if they were built into the price of the ticket, you wouldn't even know. And and so it's just they they are a, a company really focused on a great fan experience, getting people in and getting them home safely. What did you take away from, I guess, some of the past experiences like working at Ticketmaster? Because, I mean, that sounds like a phenomenal learning experience. And Brian does a really good job of highlighting, you know, multiplier skills, developing different skills from different things and building on it in terms of your experiences and applying all that, all that you're learning to the next thing that you do. What about Ticketmaster or some of these other past experiences that you've had? What are you doing to, like, apply that to what you're doing now with yeah, Kidney Health Australia. Yeah, look, I think you're all some of your experiences, right? And and I've never career planned. I've always just gone for really challenging roles and, and exciting and working, you know, it's, it's exciting things. I think, gosh, as you get older, don't you wish you could have had that experience earlier and, and, and applied <laughs> it? Because, you know, I've made mistakes along the way and, and, and you know, and so... I think I think now, even recently, I went to a leadership course run by McKinsey, and you just learn. I think the old style is you don't share too much, and you you yeah. know you, you dig in right, and and it creates stress in yourself. And if you're going to do it, you might as well do it yourself. And you, you don't have that same teams approach that you should have as a leader is that balance of pushing hard and, and getting the result and delivering the bottom line to taking teams on the journey to showing a vision to having them enjoy their work and look I, I balance and struggle with that every day still and mm-hmm. and you know now in kidney health you know we in DuPont and that was probably a lot around, yes, you're selling products and doing good, but it's also share price and all these sorts of things. Whereas in Kidney Health Australia, it's very much around saving lives and supporting people who are sick. It's a different and more positive outcome at times. And so yeah. you've got, I just don't think you ever stop learning. And, and I think younger people are much more open to sharing. I mean, you, you can see everything, you know, I've got a 16-year-old, she's all over Instagram and and TikTok and, and you know, and, and all these sorts of things. They're willing to share and, and and expose themselves much more transparently than I would ever think of doing. And, and we <laughs> argue about it now, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, oh, boy, I tell you. you. Know? And so I, I, think that's, I think that's what you learn and, and I think also... I love developing people and and so as you get busy, mm. you, you tend not to do as much as you should, et cetera. But, you know, I, I think that that's what, that's what you take away. You just, you're a sum of your experiences. You've got to keep learning. If you don't, you just get left behind. Exactly. Can I ask you about yeah. the difference between managing a, an organization like Kidney Health Australia and, and something like Ticketmaster in terms of what metrics do you use to measure your success and, and how similar or different are they? Look, it's a great question. So to be very honest, when I came into Kidney Health Australia, it was not on the back of I wanted to help people with kidney disease. So Mm. I was a commercial person in a sport. I got a phone call and it was a business turnaround. And so the passion, I guess the challenge that I went into that role was around a commercial turnaround. And within a week, I flew to one of the other cities and we have a house that is called a transplant house. And people from remote communities can come in and stay in that house for free for seven days, 14 days, whatever it takes while they have a transplant. It's a great thing. Yeah. I went and saw a renal unit in Adelaide and I saw how difficult people's lives were on dialysis. And it took less than a week for me to catch up with the mission and the purpose. And, and it really changed my whole view. Wow. So. 
my responsibilities to date has been making sure that we're on a strong commercial footing because we talk about not-for-profit, but I actually use the term profit for purpose. We need to make money. We, we need yeah. to earn mm-hmm. money. We need to be able to put money in the bank so that we can spend it on programs and services that help people and save lives. And so I'll, I never forget that. So I almost think I'm the perfect person to come into Kidney Health Australia because I knew nothing about it, So that, and which is a large portion of the population. They just don't know about kidney disease. Yep. I, I like making money so that I can spend it on people, in this case, who need support. And so that's a bit of a change in the old school not-for-profit world where it was almost seen as, you know, you don't want to make money because we're here to help people. And the two go hand in hand. And with COVID-19, there are so many not-for-profits who are now struggling because the traditional you know, donors that they would have just aren't in a position to be able to donate as much and governments are spending billions on COVID and can't just mm. give out to not-for-profits and other businesses like they used to. So you have to have a tight ship. You have to watch every penny. I count pennies. You know, you gotta you got to make sure that your costs are low. I've shifted us out of offices. You know, I've, we have. We've reduced staff as we've needed to. We've made sure that when we get donated a dollar, that we're spending most of it back on the cause and not on overheads. And that's a core business principle. And, and, and so that's what I carry into this. All right. One of the interesting thing is, well, first of all, I mean, that's unbelievable. I think that that's really cool to hear how you guys are, how you're approaching it, how your shift was to the like really embracing the mission wholeheartedly. I think it is kind of great that you came into it thinking about how do I make this a better business, more successful as a business because it is. And I think that that's, it was just so well said. It's so hard. And I'm a big philanthropy nonprofit guy. I don't, I don't do a lot of stuff as far as like, I don't run a nonprofit, but I operate with that mindset of like, I always say we're a for-profit company with a nonprofit attitude. Like we want to do as much good as we can, but we want to make as much money as we can so that we can do more good. You know, that's the, that's the whole point. So it's like, you're saying it in reverse. It's like, you know, it's profit for purpose. And that's the thing is like, got to stop demonizing money as if the money is a bad thing. What's the bad thing is how it's being spent. Yeah. It's spent on the mission. How do you do that? The transparency is the big question I have for you, because that's the thing that people struggle with with charity uh, straight up. You know, anytime yeah. I've ever done anything in, in, in philanthropy and I've done a lot and it's transparency, like, where's my money going? I don't no, donate right. more because I don't know where my money's going. I can't see what they're doing with my money. We publish our financial reports of all our revenues and and major costs, et cetera. We have a government body that oversees uh, charities like us that that, that make sure that we're meeting the right metrics, et cetera. I have a board of directors that I report into of of nine passionate people who, who make sure that we're conforming to regulatory guidelines, both in risk and behaviours and financial metrics and these sorts of things. So so we're very well regulated, which is really important. Yep. Uh, and then once you get, and, and John, you're an athlete, so you'll get this very clearly. I think one of the things I like to try and bring to the organisation, it's where I'm focusing in 2021, is I'm trying to create a high-performance culture. In Olympic sport, as you know, there's nowhere to hide, no matter what, no matter what training you do, do you diet that you have, the, the coaches, what they've been telling you, your results, John, are on a scoreboard, you know, 335 for 1,500 metres or whatever that is, right? Oh, sir. It's yes, sir. very, very transparent. So yeah. we're trying to, and what I'm trying to implement now in, in my business is that sort of high-performance culture, and that is people are attracted to charities because they want to do good, etc. But often we don't train them in core principles of business and how to handle stress and how to how to negotiate a difficult conversation and how to manage time and how to prioritize. We just throw them in and get them to, to work on the cause. So what I'm trying to um, start to implement here, and we're only a small business, you know, we're not we're not a big business like some of the other not for profits, but to create a, a culture where 
where we are a place where people come to work because there is a good system of performance management. We develop people Mm -hmm. that we're transparent in the way we talk and there's no secrets amongst us that we treat each other with respect and we sign up to our values and behaviours. And and if we can do that, then people will be attracted to us because we don't pay as well as many of the outside not-for-profit markets. And so there's got to be something else in there. There's got to be something else as to why people want to come and give you so much of their blood, sweat and tears. And they do. And we're incredibly grateful. Chris, would you say as the majority of your staff, are they actual kidney disease survivors and patients? Or are they typically just people who are interested in doing good and and this is the cause they've chosen to to fight? Yeah, no, absolutely. They're not. We've got one or two, but most of them are just people who have tremendous generosity, who want to work in a situation where they can feel proud of what they're delivering. It's for purpose and and gee, they really do it to, you know, this year, I'm so proud of my team, what we've been able to deliver, how we've been able to pivot. We've focused tremendously digitally. And, and so we're coming up to our Christmas break and they really need a holiday. I wanted to ask you about this kidney, I'm, I'm going to mess it up, Kidney Health Australia, I think, right? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. if I messed up the name. You're in general, fighting for something that's very big and broad. There are nonprofits that focus on, I'm sure, you know, helping people specifically at the time they have a transplant or specifically at the time of some specific aspect, but you're more broad. And I'm curious, where as an organization have you chosen either to put more of your emphasis or maybe can you frame for me how you think about the overarching problem of kidney health and where is the most effort needed at this time? It's it's the question I asked on day one. And so I framed it the other way. If we closed our doors, who would care? And that's a great start to then look at, okay, this is some of the value that you're giving. So there are a couple of key areas that that we're really needed. When someone gets diagnosed with kidney disease, and I think John had some of this experience, Mm -hmm. you you get diagnosed, you get spoken to, you go home and your head is spinning and you have 150 questions. So that's when they come to Kidney Health Australia. We have a website and the most downloaded fact sheet is what is kidney disease? Mm-hmm. And so we can then start them on the journey of understanding. Not only does the person who's diagnosed want to know, but their spouse, their kids, their grandparents, the family wants to understand what is going on. Because once you have kidney disease, it never leaves you. There is no cure. And so, so we have that tremendous responsibility of a helpline and a, of digital tools and information where people can come and soak up that information. As their journey progresses, as if it doesn't stop and they get to those sort of making decisions around dialysis and transplant, again, we're there. We're there giving them choices and information and booklets. On the other clinical side, we train 50,000 GPs a year in how to detect and treat kidney disease. Kidney Health Australia creates what I call the Bible for detection and treatment of kidney disease. And it's simple, it's colour-coded, it's where you are on your disease journey. And so that's a really important document. And so, yes, we do all these other peripheral things, like we have buses that people can go and have a holiday and get dialysis. And we have transplant houses and we do things, but... The bottom line of why we exist is because people need support, people need information, people need help along their journey, and people need to understand how to navigate this health system because it is difficult. I came across an amazing stat the other day that we were looking at our kids program where within three years of transferring from paediatric care to adult care, one in three kids loses their kidney transplant. So the question is, well, why? And so that's why we're here. We're here to go and help find the solution to that, to help them navigate their way through it. I mean, it's very complex and and, uh, that's why we exist. You know, Chris, we've had a few young guests who who were diagnosed young with kidney disease and all of them, I'm pretty sure all three of them said that their experience in the pediatric ward was fundamentally different from their experience outside of the pediatric ward. They get lost. Yeah. And, and so mm. all of them were fighting to stay with their pediatric doctor or, or to stay in that system. And it, it came up, it's come up three times, I think that transition, yeah. it just doesn't work today. Like, and these are two Americans and one in England, but it sounds like you're highlighting that similar sort of situation. Yeah, look, we are. Look, the government well. um, funded us for two years to go and do do some work in the kids and youth space. We've just released a state of the nation report on kids and youth. And we've also been running camps for a long time where we bring kids and their siblings together to to connect. The the key word is connection. 
right? Mm-hmm. So they get lost. You, you can imagine you're a teenager, so you're battling everything that is being a teenager, right? That's difficult right. enough. Right. You've got kidney disease. You've either got a transplant or you, you've been on yeah. dialysis or, or you're on yeah. that journey. You're on prednisone you a, and your face is swollen up. and, you're, and you're, you, you may have, your parents may have yeah. polycystic kidney disease and you don't know whether you're there or not yet. And so there's, there's the anguish of that. You go from the bright, colourful world of paediatric care into somewhere where you may get lost and you can't navigate your way through. So it's hard enough as it is being, being a teenager, let alone dealing with all of that. And so we, we've got a, we've got work to do and and to bring the clinical community the patient community together um, give them a voice and, and go and find solutions to some of those problems because the outcomes the outcomes are so critical can you imagine donating a, a heart or donating a kidney like that is just such a commitment that you have you've made and a deceased yeah. donor or in if it's a heart etc you've got to treat right. it like a diamond it's a gift of life and so we have to make sure that we that we we treat everything with so much respect and that's every day when you ask me why you're here that's why we're here yeah i i have one question and i mentioned this before to you i think but it has to do with the the post kidney disease i'm specifically thinking of transplants but i guess any kind of procedures and stuff and that's the the struggle with sort of are the people we've spoken with have described it as ptsd as sort of being really traumatic experience going through uh, dialysis and then a transplant. And and is that something that you guys also put emphasis on in terms of supporting patients in that space? Look, I think we can do more. So once you have a transplant, you know, you're, it, it's not over. So, you know, you're always taking something for immunosuppressant to stop rejection, put you at risk of skin cancer. You've got a diet you've got to look after and and some your body's trying to fight it. I know of patients who have three or four kidney transplants and, and they've failed. And, and so you're carrying antibodies. So it can oh, be man. a difficult journey. So I think as we review our purpose, I think that supporting post-transplant is something we could do better and more of. And we have a group here who does a fantastic job of promoting organ donation and encouraging donors to register on the donate life list to provide in the tragic event of a loss of life to be, to donate. Kidneys are a bit different because you can be a living donor. Um, yeah. You've got two, yeah. you can one up. So, but I think that supporting people, the mental health issues side of it is really important. So I think there's more we can do. I have one more question about just this in general, but, and I feel like maybe it's, I sometimes wonder, is it kind of a naive question? And I, I have no idea what the answer would be, but I feel like some of the problems that face kidney disease are the same that would face people with other diseases. Like fundamentally the transition from pediatric care to adult care, or, yeah. you know, after a major procedure, you know, dealing with the mental health issues or some other things, some of these, they don't, they don't seem isolated to kidney disease. So I guess my thought on this was, is Kidney Health Australia able to work with other organizations that support other conditions? in a way to sort of improve the medical experience generally, broadly, to sort of move move the needle for everybody. In, in yeah, look, regard. Brian, it's, it's, I love partnerships. So, and maybe that's the commercial side of me. So <laughs> what are the risk factors for kidney disease? It's, it's diabetes, you know, two, 40% of diabetics will end up with chronic kidney disease, hypertension, heart disease. These are all, these are all, you know, people don't just have kidney disease often. They have kidney disease and something, comorbidities, yeah. right? And so it makes sense. So we're actually working with Diabetes Australia right now on working with them to to look at how do we get to all people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and make sure they've had a kidney health check because it's, yeah. it's a known side effect. If you redesign the whole thing and put the patient at the very epicentre, you don't just go to a doctor for your kidney disease, another doctor for your diabetes, another doctor for your high blood pressure. You treat them as an individual exactly like they are. And so what we say is as part of your routine health check, as part of your routine health care, check out your kidneys, but you need to stay with your GP because the best thing you can do when you have chronic kidney disease is manage your blood pressure or manage your yeah. diet or manage your salt intake and those sort of things. So if you redesign the whole system today, wipe it, put this, put the patient at the very center, you'll get a great outcome. Yeah. When you take your car to the mechanic, you, you hope they'll look at it. They'll tell you if there's something else wrong besides the brakes and that they're being honest with you, you know, I mean, I don't know if mechanics are the best 
analogy, but no, no. But you'd expect that if they're going to look at the motor, they at least pump your tires up, right? So, Something like that. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you, you, you know, you go in to get the oil change, and then they tell you, "Oh yeah, well, there's some other stuff that we found." You know, you're like, yeah. "Well, that's kind of the thing." It's like ultimately, you want to know that your whole body is is functioning optimally when you go to see the doctor, and if it's not. I mean, why not? If you're already there, get everything checked. Let's just let's just get a full diagnostic. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because otherwise we're missing stuff all the time. Yeah, you're right. That's that's a really good point. I like the idea of that. I hope that. So, and you guys are working with other organizations, yeah, so, so we, that's that's, the, right. that's the right attitude. Yeah, it, it makes yeah. me think the same thing. You know, the equivalent of like National Kidney Foundation in the U.S. Do you guys have connections with with those organizations as well? What really came to mind is you said you create that book, like the Bible of how to how to diagnose and and yeah, treat detection and prevention. And yeah. I started. My immediate thought was like, oh, that would be great if if everybody in the U.S. had access to that too, right? <laughs> that kind of, yeah. Look, that kind I, of thing. look, I, I have reached out to to the U.S. Look, I'm two years into this, and and I was my whole plan was to come over this year and and go to the conference and meet as many people. Yeah. Uh, I have connect, I've connected in with individuals. I follow. I actually follow both the National Kidney Foundation and the American Kidney Fund. I've mm-hmm. talked to people in both. They they both do great work, and uh, and we we're actually I'm I'm learning a lot from some of the things they do. They've got programs like teaching kids how to deal with, here's a kid, they're going to school, they could get bullied, they got kidney disease, how do you ask for a transplant, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. The American Kidney Fund and National Kidney Foundation do a great job in that space. And so yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm reading and leveraging and, and, and working as much. So I think there is much to learn from each other. And if you go into the research community, they're completely networked. You know, American yeah. researchers, UK, yeah. Australian, they're very much networked. I think that the only way to get things done is through collaboration. You know, I Correct. think that you might know something or experience something or have a, a, a case study and just eye-opening. And it's like, you're too close to the problem sometimes to sometimes see the solution because it's out there on the fringes and that's where your, your network can really come into handy. So no, that's wonderful. I think that you're approaching it in a very innovative way, which is super exciting to hear because we've talked to a couple of, you know, a handful of fantastic individuals, both on the executive side and on the patient side with regards to kidney disease. And the thing that, you know, why I was so excited to have you on, Chris, was it, Brian makes a good point. This kidney disease isn't unique in the sense that there isn't, a, it, there isn't commonalities with other diseases or other illnesses out there and the types of problems surrounding anybody dealing with any of those other illnesses. It's just one of those ones that nobody's really talking about. But by highlighting it, the idea is to open up our minds to think about well, how we allow ourselves to not pay attention to something that can impact pretty much anybody, but also how are we approaching this as a whole in terms of looking at the system as a whole, you know, healthcare and in general. And again, these kinds of things keep coming up and it's conversations about specific experiences that forces you to, to look at the greater whole and saying, what are we doing? Allowing people to fall through the cracks like this and how can we do it better? And I think it's through coming together. I think that's the only way to yeah. address something that's very systemic now. It's just healthcare is a certain way in certain countries and it's a systemic thing. You, it's hard to break the system if everybody keeps going with status quo, you know? And, and things like obesity, is it's such a growing problem in, in the US oh, and in, in, in Australia. You know, and like I said, I've got teenage girls swapping out soft, sugary soft drinks for water is, yeah. is not the easiest topic to have around the kitchen table, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and hidden sugars in food and mm. some of these so-called health foods that are just laden with hidden sugar and it, it, it's just, it's wrong. So, you know, we've got a responsibility as a community to come together and to fight mm-hmm. those sort of things. We do, 100%. And that's why when you guys reached out to me, I was like, I'm I'm happy to be an honorary Australian. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, let's do this. Let's 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 keep fighting together because we gotta do as much as we can. And you know, when it comes to now, yeah, John, uh, it's gonna take it's gonna take you ten years to become an honorary Australian. You know, there's, a, there's a lot. There's a lot. Lot you're gonna have to go through before I I'm just put that title on you. No, you gotta I'm you gotta ready. learn a whole Are new kind of English, me? John. <laughs> I am ready. I started my journey now. I said, hey, three o'clock calls in the morning for a radio show. I'm on it. Whatever I gotta do. No, but time. That's a, the whole point is getting me time. I was just gonna say, like, the the thing that I'm grateful for, it's like everybody's busy. But the thing is, 
the most valuable thing you can give when we say that we're all busy is time then, you know, yeah. not money, but time, because it's hard to buy time, yeah. you know? And so when I'm taking the time to share my story, taking my time to tell people about the initiative, take it to time to say, like, explaining, like, okay, why can you help Australia? Well, because this is a global fight, you know, this is a global fight. You know, one person's got a problem in Australia with kidney disease. We all got a problem with it. Mm. You know what I mean? And so giving the time is the greatest thing that you can give. And I'm super happy to be able to do that. And I want to encourage more people to take those 60 hours this month and run the roam, the ride and, and do your yeah. thing, you know, and support what's going on by educating yourself and just establishing a little bit more awareness and appreciation for the health that you do have, making sure that your kidneys are good and thinking about those who have to deal with it on the other side of it. You know, yeah. it, makes, it our, makes the fight easier. It is. And it's our responsibility. We have to focus on outcomes, not activity. So that's a really big trap that you can fall into is that everyone's busy, everyone's time poor, and you're out there working really hard. But what you have to do, and this relates in my view to all business, is measure your outcomes because getting a media release that gets to 150 publications is not an outcome. It's simply something you've done. What you want to know is how many people took a risk test or were affected by what you that work you did. And so it's an area where we can all improve in, and that's what I'm looking at. Well, you know, know, Chris, that's one of the first things that they teach you in the school is sort of, if you're not measuring it, you're not managing it. And to your point, it's sometimes very easy to measure that something got published and it's not very easy to measure that somebody took an action on it. And that's where it's like the the next level thinking on, on trying to figure out how can you make the connections or set up the database in some way that, that when somebody does get a kidney check, it gets, it gets logged in some way so that you can kind of see that this stuff is happening and, and track progress over time. Those are the next level things that are going to drive a lot of, a lot of change. And, and they're not easy to set up and they're not, they're not even necessarily easy to envision. Sometimes they kind of require you know, stepping outside of your comfort zone and talking to people who know different things than you to come up with those ideas. But yeah, look, uh, I think the best example that I can give is we're all out there talking about health and we're talking around diet. We're doing all those sorts of things. And, and often human nature is, yeah, I'll get to that, but not until I've got a problem. I don't need to make a change. You know, I'm okay. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not overweight, but, you know, so I can do whatever. So in the kidney world, it's about early detection. So this, I'm, I'm trying to change the, the paradigm in, in kidney disease. So for so long, we've talked about kidney failure. We've talked about dialysis. We've talked about transplant. But in America, um, in Australia, there are so many of us in the community that have early markers of kidney disease but remain completely unaware. Yeah. And that's because the stat that blows me away every time I hear it is that you can lose 90% of your kidney function and have no visible symptoms. So that's why people fall off a cliff. That's yeah. why people hold my hand and say, I wish I had a known. So what wow. we're trying to do is to, is to talk about get away from kidney failure and talk about kidney preservation. So early detection, are you at risk? Do you have diabetes? Do you have hypertension? Do, you know, are you in a risk category? If you are, take a risk test, come to our website, do a risk test, and then go and see your GP for a kidney health check. Because if we can get it early, then we start talking about stopping or slowing progression to kidney failure rather than talking about kidney failure because that's a much better outcome. Right. And, and so how do you stop and slow progression? You eat better. You, you, you don't have as much sugar. You manage your blood pressure. You stop smoking. You lose a few kilos. Right. So that's what then it becomes meaningful. So the more people we can get into the kidney preservation space, the more awareness and early detection we can do. That's where we'll make a material impact on people's lives. I'm 100% in favor of this. I wish there was a way. And, and I'll, it's what I have going through my head is how can you incentivize the the pediatricians and the doctors and the hospital system to get rewarded for catching it early. It's almost yeah, like, look, I, like- think, look I, I, I think about this all the time. My dad was a pharmacist. It's really tough. GPs, uh, general practitioners in primary care and all primary care people, they work incredibly hard. They do a fantastic job. And you've seen that, you know, they put lives on the line through COVID. So if you're a doctor and you've got 10 people in your waiting room, they're getting annoyed if you're taking too long, right? And so it's yeah. great that they that you want them to look after you, but there's another nine people who are going to see the next and go, I've been waiting in your room for an hour. So I think a push-pull. It's mm-hmm. uh, 
yes, we educate GPs what to look out for. We make sure that when they're doing a health check on an annual basis with someone who's maybe 55, 60, that they did a blood test, they tick the kidney box or the diabetes box, whatever that is. But it's also about it's a patient response. You, you've got to take responsibility for yourself as well in some ways as well. So if you know that you're in risk, then do something about it. And, and you know, in our risk test that we've got online, we if you're at risk, you can download a little document. It's notes that you can take to your doctor to talk to them, you know, as simple as that. And so, right. look, I think it's a balance. It's yourself taking personal responsibility, but it's also the doctor being able to do what he do. And if you put those things together, then we might have some magic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted to ask you this uh, a little bit ago, and you mentioned how you've been with Kidney Health Australia for two years now. And is there any particular story yeah. or, or patient or experience you've had that sort of stands out and, and kind of defines why you're doing this job, why it's really meaningful? Yeah, look, I think there is. It's the people who are suffering on dialysis and have had transplants, etc. So we've just launched a, in the middle of the year, we launched an awareness campaign called Hashtag No Filter. So it's showing a patient's story about dialysis of life with no filter and the impact that that has on him. He was incredibly brave. He he spends four days a week, seven hours a day on dialysis. He's got five daughters. So I've got two and it's tough enough. He's got that. His, his wife is sitting there with him. So he's not sharing his story for people to feel sorry for him. He's just being incredibly brave to say, hey, you know, th- this is largely a preventable disease. If you get it early, you can you know you can manage it. If you work with your with the GPs, etc. So he's sharing his story, and wherever I go, I see these incredibly brave people who are either hooking up at home on dialysis themselves, who are in renal units, who are prepared to share their story, prepared to act in clinical trials. I think that's what inspires me to then go marry that with my commercial background to say, okay, what is it that I can offer? I'm not a clinician. So what can I do? I'm going to make this business as good as I can so we can help as many people as we can. So that's what inspires me. I love it, man. I, I think everything that you guys are doing, the way that you guys are approaching it, man, I mean, we just got to keep keep pushing, Chris. You know, he's got to keep talking and telling well, people. Well, the, the, you know. the world of Silicon Valley is about failing fast, right? If you want to be innovative, try something new. And if it doesn't work, cut early and go and do something else mm-hmm. before you sink billions into it. So I think we're, we're the same. I, I can't sit here today and tell you that we're, everything's going to be okay, that our business is going to be thriving and we're going to be sustainable. I, I can't do that. But what I do know is that we'll try some things. The Red Sox appeal is an example. I hope that it works. I hope people get behind it. If not, we'll cut and run and do something else. But the ultimate aim is never take your eye off purpose and mission. Gotcha. Nope. I think that that'll lead to success. Ultimately, you'll just find your way to the solution faster. You know, you'll find what works and, and, and you'll focus on those things. And what doesn't work, you'll just move on because you're focused on the right things, the outcomes that you can measure. So now, man, this has been amazing, Chris. I mean, Brian, do you have any other questions? You've asked some great questions. It's I wouldn't say you stole my questions. I, I usually ask different <laughs> questions, but you asked, you, asked, you asked the right ones. I'll be honest. You'll ask the right ones. And Is it too what, cheeky? Is it too cheeky, John, if I said, you know, all our conversations, this is the least I've heard you talk? Brian's been... You know, no, it's not too cheeky at all. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, there's a reason why Brian is the lead host. I would take over the show. <laughs> no, this is wonderful, man. And, and Chris, thanks so much. Just seriously great energy about you like i said you have a beautiful team over there at kidney health australia and and we appreciate you you honestly giving us a chance to share a little bit about your story what you're doing your background and just to help contribute to the effort to raise more awareness around kidney disease and more importantly kidney preservation so awesome good stuff man and i'd like to have brian close out for us today well i i always want to ask the, my final question to you, Chris, which is our brand is Go Be More. And I would like to know what, what do those words mean to you? Look, I hadn't heard the phrase obviously until I connected with John and, and I think it's following on from the sum of all parts. So for me, Go Be More, and maybe it's because of where I'm at in my career and my age or whatever that is, but I, I think it's me now taking time personally to, to go and do a few different things. So I've always been passionate about my work and my sport, et cetera, but now I think it's time with COVID-19 and the lessons from that is, you know, I want to spend a bit more time with the kids. I, I have in the last 12 months and they're getting older, so go and do a bit more there. There's some 
things that I really would like to see in Australia. I've never been to some of the far outback places that I would love to go and see. I'm very satisfied with work and that part of it. So you know, when I get stressed, when I get under pressure, fitness is important for me and exercise. So making sure that I continue. I don't need lots of stuff. I'm pretty simple bloke, country values, right? So yes, go sir. be more for me. It's just go and do those things. Don't put it away in the closet for another 10 years' time. Let's start to do a bit of planning and let's go and do those things. And maybe you'll pick up the guitar again after so many years <laughs> and have a crack at that. But, but you know, yes. just go and make the most of the opportunity that you've got. I think that's the learning and that's what I'd like to do. I love it. Well, Chris, wow. it's been that's great having you come it. here, talk a little bit about your background and, and what you're doing uh, with Kidney Health Australia. I really appreciate it. And I, if you have any footage of you playing uh, cricket in Peru for the Peruvian national team, let's get that on YouTube so we can all see you in action. But otherwise, honestly, you've had an amazing life and continuing to do great work. So thank you for, for coming on the show and sharing. Thanks, Brian. And John, thank you. And we really appreciate the support over here. And look, yeah. it'd be great. A couple of years time, we'll check in again and see where we're all at. You never know. Yeah, Dude. absolutely. Yeah, I plan on making my way down there some point soon now. And you just guys just gave me a whole another really good host of reasons to come down. So looking forward, looking forward to that day for sure. But keep up the great work, Chris. You know, we we love what you're doing and we support it. And we're happy to celebrate and share it through our, our podcast with our audience. And we hope that our audience will take note, be inspired to check into their kidney health and inspire others or encourage others, I should say, to do the same. So keep up the great work, Chris. And thank you Thanks, again. Great, great, great to talk to you. And we're very grateful. Yes, sir. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed that conversation and you want to send us feedback directly, my email is brian at gobimore.co. Thank you to Michelle at Creatives Collective Marketing for assistance with editing and show notes. Our next episode is with vocal artist and distance running coach Daniel Ozan, who talks about pursuing his passion for singing after giving it up for nearly a decade. Subscribe so you don't miss it. Lastly, if you enjoy the pod, please help us out by giving us a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and to make it really easy, I put a link to the reviews at the top of the show notes. For all of us at Gobi More, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too.